every day that I felt like laying on the floor and, and dropping out, <laughs> I would always think, well, I'm not doing this just for me. This is for the next person because nobody should have to go through this. And so if I get through this, that means the next person will be able to get through it and not have to deal with these hurdles. Hello and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, a production of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with singer and songwriter Precious Perez. That's Precious you're hearing in her new single, Sin Preguntar, which won Best Latin Song just last month at the Latin Music Awards Kentucky. Precious is also an educator and disability activist who's recently been performing and recording under the moniker La Reggaetonera Ciega, the blind reggaeton singer. Forgive my pronunciation. She is president of RAMPT, Recording Artists and Music Professionals with Disabilities, whose mission is, quote, to amplify disability culture, promote equitable inclusion, and advocate for accessibility in the music industry. Founded just two years ago by recording artists Lachi and Galen Lee, RAMPT has already succeeded in making the last two Grammy Awards more accessible than ever to participants, audience members, and viewers alike. Precious spoke to me from her home in Louisville, Kentucky. I started by asking her to describe the beginning of the musical journey that eventually brought her to a conservatory training at Berklee College of Music in Boston. So my journey started when I was very young, probably around the age of five. I remember at my fifth birthday party, I was gifted two CDs, very different artists, J-Lo and Eminem. <laughs> and my mom put them on in the car for me. And after that, I think when I was six years old, a family friend gifted me a pink Barbie karaoke machine. And I would love to find that to this day and like get one and replicate that experience because I think it'd be really wholesome. But You could imagine given the movie uh, how, how expensive they are, how in demand uh, they are now. <laughs> I can only imagine. But I would love to get my hands on one of those. From there, it had a little cassette recorder built in. And so I would listen to the radio in my room and I would have a cassette in and be recording myself singing to the radio. And I think at that point is when I really knew like, hey, I like singing. I could be a singer. I think I want to be a singer. And that kind of developed as I got older. Um, I was in music classes in elementary school. I was in the Boston Children's Chorus for a while. And then in high school, I was in the Handel and Haydn Society. As a scholarship recipient, I was part of the vocal arts program, which gave me four years of private lessons through New England Conservatory and also four years in a Handel and Haydn ensemble. Oh, so you were really classically trained. Yes. So I did. That was my formal training throughout high school was through them. And so, but it was a really important foundation for me because I learned how to breathe properly and really how to utilize my instrument in a way that I could transfer 
the basic techniques to other styles, which is what I was able to do with my voice teacher in college. Had Berkeley educated other blind students before? So Berkeley has an assistive technology lab at Berkeley designed specifically for blind students. So there were a lot of us. There are still, you know, the more of us leave, a bunch of us come in. So that uh, was an amazing resource, an incredible group of people I was able to lean on. I will say that depending on the major across the college, accommodations aren't succinct. And it really depends on what you're doing and your ability to advocate. Because for me, I was the first blind student at Berkeley to do the music ed major program. And so I encountered a lot of questions about, well, how are you going to do this thing? How are you going to adapt a classroom? How are you going to do this activity? And it was, you know, my answer for the first little while was, we're going to have to figure it out together because I don't know. And you're the professor. So you teach me what you know. And then I tell you what I would need to make that work. And so my professors were incredible. I got really lucky with my professors. Um, we were able to really work through a lot of that. You know, it was a long road, of course, a lot of uphill battles, um, a lot of things behind the scenes. But overall, I was able to complete my degree. So I'm, I'm happy about that. What came easiest for you and what was the biggest challenge? I always say the biggest challenge in anything is other people's misconceptions. Oh, because for which me, were, which were what? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I always get that reaction. That's so funny. For me, I now am at a point in my life where I know exactly what I'm capable of. I'm confident in myself and I'm not afraid to ask for help when I need it. And I'm just very comfortable in my own skin. And so the challenges that I face tend to be when somebody else decides that I'm not able to do something or thinks that I can't accomplish something because of my blindness. And so that's when I usually encounter challenges. And, you know, throughout my academic career, it was, well, you know, this is a lot of work, right? And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, do you have somebody that can help you? This was my very first meeting with the chair of the, the department before I even applied for the major. This was just getting a feel for things. I walked in there and that was the question I got asked. And I said, well, yeah. And he said, well, do you have somebody that could help you? And I said, no. <laughs> like, And in my head, you know, I, I'm a very sassy human. And so in my head, I was thinking, sir, you don't know who you're talking to. <laughs> Because my entire life, I've been taught to advocate for myself, and I haven't let anybody else decide for me what I could do and what I couldn't do and what I was allowed to do because of my disability. And so, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, that's remarkable for any young person, let's say at the age of 17 or 18, when you're getting <laughs> into school, whether they have a disability or not. So, where did that knowledge of self come from? I think it came from. You know, my mom, ever since I was young, always said, you know, you're going to grow up like everybody else. And she knew how important my independence was and how important it was to teach me how to go through life and be able to keep up and be able to compete with my peers. And so the combination of that support and all of the support from all the teachers I had and everyone who believed in me really 
I think, cultivated that confidence and my advocacy skill set. And so once I got to this point, I kind of expected this to happen. I was like, well, here we go again. (laughs) And so my solution has always been, watch me. You don't think I can do it? Here we go. I'm going to show you that I can, and I'm going to show you that I can do it 10 times better than you ever imagined. And so from there, it just ended up being trial after trial. Okay, we're going to overcome this. This is how we're going to do it. And it was successful nine times out of 10. And now, of course, it means that the next blind music education student they have, it'll be successful 10 out of 10 because of the systems you put in place, right? I would hope so. Yes, that was the plan. You know, every day that I felt like laying on the floor and and dropping out, (laughs) I would always think, well, I'm not doing this just for me. This is for the next person because nobody should have to go through this. And so if I get through this, that means the next person will be able to get through it and not have to deal with these hurdles. And so that really motivated me to keep going. You know, I was a first generation college student. I'm a blind Puerto Rican woman, low income with anxiety and depression, all these different intersections. And so when I would think about giving up, it was my communities and my family that motivated me to really keep going. Because if I was successful, then my community could be successful too. So when you were studying on the the music performance aspect of education, did you already have a sense of the type of music you were going to want to sing professionally? I think for me, it started very vague because I, I want, I knew I wanted to be versatile. I knew that you know, I was trained classically, but I wanted to do contemporary pop, R&B, um, Latin, all of the above, all across the board. And so, you know, as I wrote my own songs, I released my first album during my first year at Berkeley. Wow. And Because you had plenty of spare time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had help with that, too. My high school music teacher pulled me aside one day uh, during my senior year and said, you know, I really think you have a gift. Like, I want to help you make an album. I have a friend who's a producer. And so he helped me create a Kickstarter campaign. And the producer, Doug Batchelder, he produced everything, brought in the session musicians, did all of that. And, you know, we were lucky enough to raise the money in time. And I was able to release my first album in November of 2016. And so, you know, from there, I kind of figured out my sound. I kept writing and I kept you know, releasing things here and there. And I think that was my journey documented through whether it was covers or performances or different acoustic releases that I had produced myself or worked with uh, the same producer from my first album to release. That was my growth. I was able to grow through my experiences. Um, When I studied abroad in Valencia in Spain, um, that really shaped, I think, my direction a little bit more. And recently, um, I've just entered my new era, which I think is where I've always wanted to be, which is in front and center in the Latin space. Well, speaking of front and center, I mean, recently, not only are you placing the, the Latin aspect of yourself front and center, but unlike many of your blind musician predecessors, you are also placing your disability front and center. You're not hiding it in any way. I'm thinking for yourself. You call yourself la reggaetonera ciega. Yeah. Okay. Right? Look at the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and also another thing is you do not hide your eyes behind sunglasses, which a lot of blind musicians in the past have done. So I'm curious if you can talk about how you made sure that your full identity was part of your performance persona. Absolutely. Um, for me, I've never, I'm not a kind of a person that can separate myself from my art or from my work. And so my art has always been a representation of who I am and where I am at that point. And so for me to do what I love, I have to be myself while I do it, or it doesn't feel real or authentic. And my disability is a huge part of who I am and where I am and why I am where I am. And so it's so important for me to really put disability culture at the forefront. And, you know, that's evident through my involvement as now president of Recording Artists and Music Professionals with Disabilities. And that is a platform connecting the music industry to a global network of disabled music professionals. Ramped is a hub where Anyone in the industry can hire disabled talent if you're looking for a manager or a producer or a songwriter. You know, there's no excuse anymore as to where we are because now there is a place to find us. And Ramped also does consulting. We've partnered with the Grammys on accessibility, the Folk Alliance. We've had a couple different press features in Billboard and Grammy.com and all of these different things really amplifying disability culture and advocating for accessibility within the music industry and promoting inclusion. And so I think my passion has grown stronger since being involved with Ramped. Um, I got involved before Ramped launched officially. I was in the first class of professional members, and Ramped was founded by recording artist Lachi, who is very um, disability forward. And, you know, she really gave me that push that I needed to really believe in myself to the point of, well, I can do this and I can do this as myself. And I feel like putting my disability at the forefront not only raises awareness, but it also allows people to understand that like disability is also a diversity, but disability is something to celebrate, not something that signifies brokenness. And so I'm really passionate about being authentically me, and part of that is my blindness. How old were you when you wrote your first song? Oh man, my first good song was <laughs> when I was like 13 or 14 and eight. And what, grade. how did you my... know it, it was good? <laughs> <laughs> like, well, as, opo see... as opposed to the bad ones before, what made that one good? So, <laughs> my very first song. I have to start with the bad ones because that was like the first time I ever wrote anything. Sure. So I was probably nine years old when I wrote my first song. And it was a poem about my childhood friend Julian when he was a baby. He was a baby baby back then. And I was nine. And I wrote a song for him. Well, it was a poem. It started as a poem. And then I brought it to my music teacher. And I said, I want to turn this into a song. Can we do that? And so she really helped me create the melody and the piano part. And a friend and I got to perform it at our school assembly. And okay, so, so you learned the basics of building a song there. I learned the basics mm -hmm. then, yes. And then I wrote another one, like, I think it was a couple months later. I remember being around 10. And that one was lost inside my mind. And it was very simple. And it was very repetitive. And 
it wasn't that great. It wasn't that great. But <laughs> at the time, I thought like, wow, this is best. I wrote a song and it's so good. And I did it by myself. And so, you know, but I think when I was 13 and I woke up at one in the morning with this idea in my head about the first song that I always refer to is it's called Different and it's off my first album. And it really touches on do you feel differently because you're different and how that feels when you are in a situation where you're looked at as other. But, you know, exploring that feeling, but also the hope that and, you know, the realization that it's okay to be different because that's what makes us all unique. And, you know, you're not alone if you do feel that way. And you're allowed to shine. And, you know, no one has the right to judge because we're all undefined. And so it's it's just that kind of exploration and acknowledgement of those feelings, but also celebration of differences. Wow, at 13, that's, that's pretty profound <laughs> thing to write. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Do you write because some of your recent songs are written in Spanish and sung in Spanish. Do you write with equal ease in both Spanish and English? I can write in both languages, but I feel like it helps me to have someone that has a little more vocal because I'm fluent in both, but I'm also bilingual and I speak a lot more in English. So I think sometimes the translation, like I have to really cross-reference and um, have someone look at it just to make sure like, hey, this this sounds okay, This this makes sense. Because there may be a word that I use in English that I don't necessarily know the word in Spanish because I never had to use that word before in Spanish. And so I think it helps to have somebody else to look it over if I do write something in Spanish. But I have written a couple tunes on my own. The first song of the new era that was Sin Preguntar, that was written by the songwriter Raquel, and she is fantastic. And that was basically like, all right, what is your vision? What do you want to talk about? And then she wrote it and I was like, absolutely 100% perfect. <laughs> so, and then Melanin Queen was me. Um, that was half English and half Spanish. And it was an idea I'd been working on um, for a while. And I'm so happy that it's out in the world now. The next one um, that's coming out is also written by Raquel, but um, they're all based around kind of like, what did I want? to see as far as like, what is my vision and, and what do I represent as an artist and what direction do I want to go in? And so it's very collaborative. I always think collaboration, you know, I used to be like, I want to do everything myself. I want to write, I want to play, I want to do all the things like Ed Sheeran. I want to like have my loop station and do all of this by myself. But I've come to realize that it's so much more fun and meaningful when I can collaborate with other people to create. And it really enhances the experience, but also the projects. And it's so much fun. <laughs> what have you, because you've probably met with so many industry executives and professionals, as well as musical artists with all kinds of disabilities. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious about what, if there's been, if you yourself have learned a couple, you know, striking things you might not have known before this experience. I think for me, I've just learned and continue to recognize that there's a gap. You know, there's gaps in the industry and there's a lot more barriers than I realize that aren't just my own barriers as a blind person. But there are 
deaf artists who also face barriers and have different accommodations, people with um, neurodivergence, people with chronic illnesses. There are different accommodations and all over the gamut that aren't just related to what I'm used to advocating for. And so really understanding all of the different needs and access needs across the board has really been something that I've learned and I've been able to really um, incorporate into when I advocate for access needs in this capacity. And so it's really opened my mind and uh, my heart to all the different lived experiences of people with disabilities and specifically music professionals with disabilities so that I can better advocate for all of us in the leadership capacity that I am fortunate enough to be in. Other than going to ramp.org to find and hire musical professionals with disabilities, are there other kind of simple ways in which, or kind of no-brainer ways in which the recording industry could do better to accommodate and encourage blind musicians? Absolutely. I mean, there are a lot of just really low-hanging fruit that the industry could incorporate in social media marketing and posts using camel case hashtags, which is capitalizing the first letter of every word so that uh, screen readers don't read it as a jumbled mess. Image descriptions, making sure that whatever pictures are posted have an I, you know, ID colon, this picture shows XYZ, you know, woman standing smiling with a trophy or, you know, whatever details might be on a flyer that's posted. Just in the caption so that those of us who can't see the image know what the image is. There's also alt text where that can go as well, which is it's called alternative text and image descriptions can also be put in that box. There's various ways to do it on different social medias, but it's best practice to put it in the caption because then it's fully visible and fully accessible. Audio description at events or for different shows and things self-description now that's a that's one that's really simple that anyone can do when you're on a panel or when you're at an award show hi my name is so and so and today I'm wearing blah 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 blah, or anything that really you know for example I would say like I'm Precious Perez I am a blind Latina woman with box braids and it it doesn't have to be complicated it shouldn't be this really long like long-winded description um but just something that gives us insight into you know your outfit or you know what matters to you and a little bit of personality and it's very simple it doesn't have to be complicated doesn't have to be more than like 10 words but it's something that can really help engage blind musicians or audience members those are specifically for blind musicians, but then we think of like ASL interpreting front and center, making sure that there's captions available, and also having ramps implemented on stages and making sure they are accessible as far as venues go. There's a lot of small things that can be done to ensure that accessibility is universally integrated and not an afterthought. What about in your experiences recording in the recording studio and filming a video? What's most helpful in those settings? So I was able to really, in every recording studio I've been in and in every kind of situation, I've been able to really say, you know, I need a little more description on this. Um, and, you know, everyone 
pretty much new to describe like, okay, we're going to the right, turn to your right, and this is where the booth is, or I'm going to put this behind you, and this is, you know, the microphone is right in front of you, and if you reach backwards, you'll feel where you can put your headphones. So just being very open. My solution is to just be open. I am very open about my disability. I'm very open about who I am and what I need. And so I always tell people, just ask. Ask if you don't know. Because I will have no issue telling you if I need more information or if I need you to do something differently. So you don't get answer fatigue? No, not in those situations. I think that comes more with like the general public. (laughs) Oh, I see. I can get uh, overwhelmed as anyone, I'm sure, with a disability. Like we're human. So there's going to be days where we just want to do the thing we're trying to do and don't want to deal with people being like this way, that way, put their hands on you and do all this and answering questions. And I do my best to try and be as patient and as open as I can, because I know that most of that comes from ignorance. The way that it happens is not necessarily by choice or of somebody's fault. They've just never been exposed to people with disabilities or they just don't genuinely have no idea. But there has to be a balance, right? Because we can't be on all the time. And so I try to, whenever I start feeling myself getting overwhelmed, you know, I'll just kind of find some way to decompress and really listening to my own body and my own mind and what I need really helps me to kind of balance all of that. Because it can be exhausting and it, it is a lot, especially as a disabled artist that is doing everything on my own for myself. And so I kind of deal with that sometimes where I'm like, man, I really just don't want to do this today. <laughs> but then I just take a deep breath and I remember that this is what I've always wanted. And so we're going to get up and we're going to do it. And then I'll sleep for 10 hours afterwards and it'll be great. <laughs> If you'd like to learn more about Precious and read a longer version of this interview, just head to uncsa.edu slash artrestart. And in our show notes, I've also included a link to the American Foundation for the Blind Social Media Accessibility Guidelines if you need a refresher after what Precious has taught us. And if you yourself know a change-making artist in your part of the country you think would make a great art restart guest, please let me know. You can find me on Instagram at PCTalenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks for listening. <laughs>